You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. A judge struck down Michigan's 1931 anti-abortion law, the latest development over abortion rights in a state where the issue is being argued in courtrooms and at the ballot box. The law, which was dormant before the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June, criminalizes abortion. Joining me is an expert in the law of reproductive rights, Mary Ziegler, a professor at UC Davis Law School. So, Mary, this is what they call a zombie abortion law? So Michigan's uh, abortion law is actually unusual, not in the sense that the zombie law that was on the books was not enforced during the time Roe v. Wade was our law, but then sprang back into effect. It's also unusual because it was passed in 1931, which was not a kind of common time for states to be passing more sweeping criminal abortion bans. But at the time, Michigan lawmakers were enhancing penalties and also expanding prohibitions earlier into pregnancy. I mean, you know, this was also being done at a time when the state was expanding the compulsory eugenic sterilization laws. So that may have been kind of the moment that that we were looking at in terms of what produced the law. So the judge's decision, her language was quite strong. Tell us about, you know, how she came to her decision. Well, the the judge's decision essentially was based on the idea that Michigan has more expansive ideas of liberty and equality than the federal constitution, and that therefore the result um, under a Michigan state constitutional law would be different than the one that the U.S. Supreme Court reached in Dobbs. There's so much litigation over abortion in Michigan, it's quite confusing. The Court of Appeals has ruled that this judge's decision's aren't binding on county prosecutors. She disagrees, but that's being appealed to the Michigan Supreme Court. If her decision can't stop county prosecutors 
from prosecuting abortion providers, which several of them have said that they intend to do. How much of a victory is this? Well, I think obviously this is just round one in this much longer um, process of litigation. There are multiple lawsuits challenging the constitutionality of the 1931 law. There's the question about whether the judge's order is binding on county prosecutors. And we know that in one way or another, all of these disputes are going to end up at the Michigan State Supreme Court. And so I think the judge's decision is mostly just, you know, around fired in that broader conflict that's ending at the Michigan Supreme Court. We all know that sooner or later, that's where um, we're going to get a a more complete resolution of all of this. An amendment on the November Mm -hmm. ballot would add abortion rights to the state constitution. So that would answer these questions, right? It doesn't really resolve the question of whether as it stands, the 1931 law violates Michigan state constitution, which is something that the state Supreme Court may have a responsibility to resolve regardless of the valid initiative. But I think it's, it's safe to say that we will have a lot of action in Michigan for a long time. And I think that makes sense because Michigan is both significant regionally as a place that has offered abortion access as other parts of the Midwest have not, and also kind of as a bellwether, because the best polling we have would suggest that Michigan is a state where a majority of voters would want abortion to be legal, and yet the state has this law from 1931 that it will likely be enforced notwithstanding what voters may prefer. You think that this judge's decision won't stand then? Well, I don't know if it will stand. I think it's just going to be kind of a way station on the way to the Michigan Supreme Court. So I wouldn't be surprised, given the composition of the Michigan Supreme Court and some of its past decisions, um, it it wouldn't be a shock to me if the Michigan Supreme Court ultimately agreed with this judge. All I was saying was that, you know, one way or another, we won't really have a final resolution on any of these questions until the Michigan State Supreme Court weighs in. I want to turn to another issue, which is shaping up to be the next battleground in the fight over abortion rights, and that's the issue of fetal personhood. Explain that concept. Sure. So historically, the anti-abortion movement in the United States was not focused on overruling Roe v. Wade, in part because the movement existed before Roe v. Wade came down. The movement was sort of focused at the beginning at this idea of recognizing the personhood of fetuses, which would mean not that abortion was wrong, but that abortion was actually unconstitutional. Because if a fetus is a person, then that person has rights, for example, to due process and equal protection under the law that would make abortion problematic at best and likely unconstitutional. So we've seen in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision, a lot of anti-abortion groups returning to this goal, which really has kind of been the goal all along. But when Roe was on the books, and I think when the anti-abortion movement was more interested in playing to public opinion You didn't hear a lot about it publicly, even though within the movement, it was still a priority. Now, obviously, they're talking about it very publicly and pushing forward in the states as well as potentially at the federal level. Eleven states already have language in their constitutions, laws or policies granting rights to fetuses. Georgia has the most expansive law on fetal personhood in the country. The statute prohibits abortion after six weeks and recognizes the fetus as a person at that point. It also provides expectant mothers with a $3,000 tax credit per fetus and allows them to file for child support during pregnancy. It even instructs state officials to include fetuses in population counts. I've been talking to Professor Mary Ziegler of UC Davis Law School. Mary, this Georgia law seems... A bit extreme, to say the least. Would it stand up in court? Well, I mean, I think that Georgia law, 
I mean, so far has stood up in court. I mean, there have been challenges to that personhood law that um, were at least rejected by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. And I mean, I think the Georgia law is interesting because most personhood measures we've seen so far have basically just been abortion bans, right? So, for example, South Carolina is now considering a personhood law that's essentially just a really sweeping abortion ban. Georgia's law is interesting because it seems to be trying to take the idea of fetal personhood, I wouldn't say more seriously, but at least to be more logically consistent, right? <laughs> is a person such that you can send people to prison. It may be a person for reasons that could theoretically benefit a pregnant person or woman, right? But I think the logistics of actually working out how that will all work in the real world is something the movement really hasn't done yet. And I don't even know if there's consensus within the anti-abortion movement about what fetal personhood is beyond just a mandate to criminalize abortion. Arizona has a law granting personhood to fertilized eggs, embryos, and fetuses. So what does that do if you have a fertilized egg you decide you don't want to go forward with with a pregnancy and you have to keep the egg? I mean, it just raises a lot of questions in my mind. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if this has really been worked out, right? Because I think that when the anti-abortion movement first developed this argument for personhood in the 1960s, it was entirely as an argument against the legalization of abortion. And, And then there was a moment in the 70s when anti-abortion leaders were hoping there would be a constitutional amendment recognizing personhood. And at that point, you began to get some conversations about, okay, well, if we're going to recognize personhood, how are we going to actually implement that? Who's going to be obligated to take care of these persons? Is the government that's actually recognizing personhood going to do anything, or is it going to just offload that responsibility onto, onto women, right? But, you know, the constitutional amendment wasn't going anywhere fast, and so those conversations sort of stopped happening beyond the idea of personhood as a kind of rallying cry or a justification for criminalization. So I I think we're at a moment now where there's definitely interest in the anti-abortion movement in personhood, but not consensus on what it actually is. As you said before, these fetal personhood laws, that's just a step to saying that can't have an abortion even if the mother's life is in danger. Um, Right. So that's the goal. No abortions. Yeah, I mean, and I think I think there are a few salient things about that. One is that personhood is obviously a national goal. This is not something the movement wants to see stop in states like Georgia and Arizona, because the dream, obviously, if you have some kind of national personhood mandate, is that there would no longer be, you know, the federal government allowed to authorize abortion pills, or there'd no longer be abortion available in California or New York. It would be illegal everywhere. And that's why there's some energy, for example, in an executive order recognizing personhood or a federal statute recognizing personhood, or even we've already seen petitions filed in the U.S. Supreme Court asking the court to recognize that the idea of personhood is deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition. So I think long term, you'd see this nationwide push. The other uh, way personhood comes up is in the rise of this so-called abolitionist movement, which is a minority extremist faction within the anti-abortion movement that calls for the punishment of women. They argue that, you know, if fetal personhood is a thing, that means that the killing of fetuses has to be punished as homicide, just as the killing of anyone else would be, and that anyone involved in that killing, including women, has to be punished. So there are a lot of moving parts and a lot of disagreements, but I think the ultimate 
the reason personhood is compelling to abortion opponents, notwithstanding all these disagreements, is as, as a tool to ban abortion across the country, not just in states that theoretically want to do it. In his opinion, in the um, Dobbs case, did Justice Samuel Alito refer to personhood in any way? I mean, not really. Justice Alito, um, the people who are personhood proponents, uh, like Josh Hammer and Joshua Craddock, read Justice Alito as kind of giving a wink and a nod to personhood. There's nothing that explicit in the Dobbs opinion. Justice Alito does refer to fetuses as unborn children. Um, he's, he's, you know, quoting Mississippi's statute when he does that, but I think it's still strategic. Uh, Justice Alito also differentiates abortion from other substantive due process rights like same-sex marriage by emphasizing that abortion is the taking of fetal life, which some saw as an odd personhood. So I think, you know, you can really read Dobbs either way, and personhood proponents have certainly taken it as a positive sign. I think that the more cautionary note, at least in the short term for personhood proponents, is Brett Kavanaugh, who went to some length to say, you know, the Constitution is neutral, it's not pro-life or pro-choice, which some people took to mean Justice Kavanaugh was not yet ready to hear a personhood argument. Having said that, I think personhood proponents believe that, you know, Justice Kavanaugh may be ready to reconsider, you know, several years down the road. They don't take that as a sort of permanent <laughs> view. They take it as a, a kind of yellow light in the sense that he's not ready to move quickly on that front. Wouldn't they need some scientific evidence before they would declare that life begins at conception? They yeah, just... I mean, there's there's some real challenges about, you know, standing and so on. In the, in the pre-Roe era, abortion opponents asked to be named guardians ad litem, either for the fetuses of specific patients or just, you know, class action suits on behalf of all fetuses potentially scheduled to be aborted in particular jurisdictions. The petition before the Supreme Court now also has to grapple with this question about, you know, who's, you know, who's actually being represented. So that that's going to be an ongoing challenge. And I think, obviously, there's a certain amount of, I think, overconfidence on the part of the anti-abortion movement now, um, in terms of the kind of po- politics it's practicing, the kind of aspirations it's articulating, because I think the movement after Dobbs thinks, you know, all things are possible, and that may still not be true, notwithstanding the, the fact that there's a conservative supermajority on the court. Because if the court declares that a fetus is a person, then states who've passed laws that protect abortion, those laws would be void. Right. Um, so, I mean, and that's really the, the point, I think, because if you're the anti-abortion movement right now, you know that you have laws that you like in a whole variety of places, right? But you know that in an America where travel is common and abortion pills can be bought on the internet, it's going to be very hard to actually make a meaningful change in abortion rates, especially if, as is the case for the anti-abortion movement, you're aligned with a Republican Party that does nothing to reduce poverty or the reasons people may seek abortion when they would otherwise prefer to carry a pregnancy to term, right? Mm -hmm. So I think, again, the movement isn't really turn to any of those anti-poverty solutions. Instead, there's been this escalating effort to prevent people from accessing abortion by any means necessary. So that's why you're seeing some states talk, for example, about barring travel for abortion or expand applying their criminal laws out of state. But it would obviously be easier in many ways if the movement just had a single national ban, right? And then you wouldn't have to worry about any of this. You could use the federal government 
to enforce such a ban, even if state officials were unwilling to do so. And so that makes, ironically, it, it kind of increases the movement's reliance on controlling the Supreme Court, aligning with the National Republican Party. All of these things we were told were all just about getting rid of Roe. In a post-Roe America, the anti-abortion movement has, I think, even more interest in those things. Thanks so much, Mary. That's Mary Ziegler, a professor at UC Davis Law School. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Even before the Supreme Court wiped out the constitutional right to abortion, the prosecution of women suspected of purposefully or accidentally ending a pregnancy was on the rise. According to reproductive rights lawyers, there's been a movement to use state laws on child endangerment, feticide, or murder to arrest women whose pregnancies ended prematurely, and it may be a harbinger of what's to come. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Patricia Hurtado. Even before Roe was overturned, there have been cases where women have been prosecuted for miscarriages or stillbirths. Tell us about a few of those. Well, one of them is a case involving a woman named Adora Perez, who went to the hospital and had a stillbirth. And later, the health authority reported her to the local prosecutor, and she was charged originally with murdering her child for allegedly taking methamphetamines were found in her system, not the child's system. So there was allegations that she had basically killed her child and murder charges were filed against her. She ended up taking a plea. She was facing like more than 20 years in prison if she went to trial. So 
getting the advice of a local lawyer that didn't know anything about this, she decided to plead guilty to a, a lower charge of manslaughter for killing the stillborn child. It turns out later, when a real defense lawyers found out about her case, she was languishing in jail for having pled guilty to manslaughter, and they started taking up her case on appeal to overturn her conviction, her guilty plea. So that was finally resolved after four years, but it's quite a long saga for this poor woman. Four years in prison, and this is in California, which is in the forefront of protecting abortion rights. Yeah, but Perez was in the Central Valley of California, which is a very rural, very poor, lots of immigrants, and pretty conservative area of California. And so the DA prosecuted her for murdering her stillborn child. And eventually, the California Appeals Court concluded that she couldn't have killed someone who was never born because the child was stillborn, so that it was a misapplication of the law. And the law that Adora Perez and this other woman, Chelsea Becker, were both prosecuted in California by the same DA He said that it was a law that was created in the 1970s to protect pregnant women from a third party attacking them and killing the fetus. And it all started when a woman, I believe she was a bank teller, she was shot in the stomach by a bank robber, and there was such an outcry that her baby died because of this bank robbery that they created this statute, the fetal murder statute. But it only applies to a third party. And what legal experts and abortion rights activists have said is these are misapplications of laws originally designed to protect the pregnant person and their child and now are actually being applied against the pregnant person and giving the fetus the same rights as the parent. Do any states have laws that punish women who get abortions? Yeah, there are states that have a totally outlawed abortions, and they're still fighting them out. Every day we see a new ruling of how the state is interpreting the overturning of Roe. There's also prohibition against self-managed abortions, and these would be women who take those drugs to basically self-induce an abortion under a certain time period. There's an effort underway. That is one of the major ways women have been using to manage their abortions because it's a lot more convenient to do it chemically. But of course, it only takes place up to a certain period of time. It's allowable. What I was surprised to see, June, was the amount of prosecutions under situations that just seemed like it was bad science and the misapplication of the law. For example, the mother prosecuted for her baby dying, stillborn, and they concluded that it was because there was methamphetamine in her system, the mother's system, but there was none detected in the baby. Her lawyers told me there's no evidence that taking methamphetamine, although I'm not condoning it, but that that would automatically result in the death of a fetus. And yet the prosecutor proffered and had an expert witness that testified about this. And it wasn't until later that her lawyers were able to take to the appeals court that the baby's umbilical cord had been pressed against its neck during delivery. And that shutting off of blood to the child would have killed it. So there's there's a lot of unknowns with miscarriages and stillbirths. Some 20% 
of pregnancies and in miscarriage or stillbirth. And a lot of the lawyers for these women say it's an unknowable, and yet these prosecutors are using the law and making conclusions and trying to convince judges to let these prosecutions go forward. It's amazing to me because, you know, people don't know sometimes why they have a miscarriage. How were these women discovered, so to speak? Was it their health care providers? Yeah, there's an indication. Now, we have in the case of this, people might have remembered it from May. There was a woman named Lizelle Herrera in Texas, and she was arrested and charged with the murder for a self-induced abortion. Ostensibly, I understand that she was apparently taking, you know, some medication like mefeprestone to end her pregnancy. She went to the hospital, and we understand from the local district attorney who indicted her for murder that he was informed by hospital staff. Now, the thing that was extraordinary about Lizelle Herrera's case, which was quickly made public by abortion rights activists and who came to her aid, I mean, this woman was being held on murder charges and something like $500,000 bail in jail. And allegedly, she was reported because Texas has this vigilante law called Senate Bill 8. But that's a civil statute that allows people, if they believe someone is helping someone get an abortion, they can file a suit and file a claim. But it's not a criminal statute. And yet, here's this poor woman, Lizelle Herrera, was prosecuted for murder, and the DA got an indictment against her for murdering her fetus for a self-induced abortion. But there's a difference between a criminal statute and a civil statute like SBA. Eventually, there was such an outcry, he had to drop the charges. But the idea that he could get an indictment based on a civil statute is pretty extraordinary when you think about it. I remember that case. It was incredibly odd that he would even try to do that. Now, as you mentioned, many of the arrests are related to drug use. Yeah, a reporting found out, and it was kind of shocking to me, that there are statutes on the books designed to protect children, toddlers, whose parents maybe operate a meth lab. So these laws were created, child endangerment laws, to protect children from, you know, say, getting burned or in an explosion or getting exposed to toxic substances because their parents are making methamphetamines in the garage. But what these laws are now being used for, which is kind of like that third-party example I gave about laws originally designed to protect the pregnant woman and her fetus are now being used against the pregnant person. And they're saying that the chemical endangerment or the child endangerment is being done by the mother who exposes the child. And some examples were given to me by some of the lawyers. They've had cases where the woman took a Valium authorized by her doctor. Or the woman was like, say, in a car accident and took a painkiller. And then there's an episode of a miscarriage or stillbirth, inexplicably, right? And then the woman goes to the hospital, and then suddenly they ask her, what did you take? And then she says, well, I took the prescription drug medication given to me by my doctor. And they say, aha. But the mother is taking it for herself. And one court opinion I saw that analyzed this, said if we take this to the logical conclusion that the prosecutor had operated under, then it would mean that any mother who even takes an aspirin might face prosecution for endangering the child under this theory, which is not what the laws were designed to do. But 
it's becoming that the unborn fetus is being given fetal personhood at the same level as the pregnant person. Abortion rights and reproductive rights lawyers have told me this is now going to possibly throw everything into an uproar because what you'll have is you might have a mother with an ectopic pregnancy and now they may not be able to perform the abortion that's necessary, would never be a viable fetus, and the mother's life may be in danger because of this new thinking that fetal personhood is the pregnant woman's life equated the same way as the fetus. About 1,300 women have been arrested or charged from 2006 to 2020 for their actions during pregnancy. These lawyers for these women, these are the lawyers in the trenches and they're advocates for women say, listen, how is it that this is happening? But not only is it happening, it's happening at an escalated rate. And they say that this is part of this whole effort, not only to undo Roe, but also the push you can see that suddenly fetal personhood is a fundamental right, that the fetus has the same right as its mother, and that you're going to apply laws that originally were designed to protect the pregnant person from attacks by an outside third party, and now you're going to use them against the pregnant person. So those are the kinds of things that we've seen that are being used currently and have been used on an increasing basis. It's kind of staggering. Thanks, Pat. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Patricia Hurtado. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.